special time of prayer this morning. I think most of you all know by now what is going on overseas with Ukraine and Russia and just all the, the difficulties that are, are happening. And um, uh, we know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ over there who are, are suffering and uh, people who, who aren't part of the body of Christ are suffering. And so we just want to just take a moment and, and pray for Pray for them. Pray that, uh, that they can recognize God's sovereignty even in the midst of this and that, uh, that God's name is glorified. And I know that it's a hard thing to say when, when times like this happen, but we pray that, uh, that he uses this to extend the gospel, to, to make people aware of their desperate need for him, and that, uh, that true salvation can't come from any political parties, can't come from any sort of political power, but it can only truly come from Christ. And so let's, let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and for those who are suffering right now. Father God, <clears throat> It is difficult when things like this come about, and Lord, from our perspective, we are often at a loss of words as to, as to why it's happening. But God, one thing that we can know for certain is that you are sovereign. God, you are in control even when it seems like you may not be. And so God, I pray, Lord, that you give Christians all over the world, especially in Ukraine right now, Lord, the faith to believe, God, that you are sovereign. You are in control over this and that they seek to lean on you more than they ever have. And God, I pray, Lord, that you use this difficult situation to, Lord, further your kingdom, to advance the gospel, to show people that they desperately need saving from more than just, from just bombs and bullets and, and tyrannical powers, Lord, but they need saving from their sin. And Lord, so we just pray, God, that your will be done. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So good morning again. Welcome to Redeemer Church. I'm so thankful that you are all here with us this morning as we continue to plumb the depths of the gospel of Mark. Now, I'm sure that I don't have to tell many of you that there are things in our lives that Simply don't go according to plan. I don't think that's news to any of us. It's kind of an example of that. I have a friend from college, or from the college that I attended, who, who met a woman at that exact same college. And, you know, it's Bible college, so people pop the question pretty much immediately as soon as you, as soon as you meet a guy or gal. And uh, shortly after they popped the question, they got married, and I remember talking with him about his future plans for he and his wife, and of course at the top of their list for them was to begin to grow their family, to have children. And the day finally came <clears throat> for them when the test came back positive, and I'm not, not talking about COVID, this was before all that started, and a positive test meant something totally different. But their test came back positive, and they were able to celebrate a new pregnancy. And things were going well for months and for months. But then during one routine run-of-the-mill visit to the OB, they heard the news that, that no parents would ever want to hear. For reasons I, I don't know, the baby was found to have some sort of disorder, and soon after the appointment, the child died in the womb. Now, you don't have to be a parent to, to know the heartbreak that would follow something like that. All the plans for their ideal, perfect family were just crumbling all around them. 
the expectations of playing with their child in the yard, of teaching him or her how to, how to read or write or to, to teach them about Jesus, all those things were just completely shattered. Life did not go the way that they expected. And friends, this is, this is what this passage that we're looking at today here in Mark is, is, is kind of all of about, all about. Often the life that we live, it does not go the way that we expect. That was certainly the case for someone we haven't heard from in a while in this gospel, John the Baptist. But that is the thing about Jesus, isn't it? He never pledges to meet our expectations. He never pledges to meet our expectations. And it is often when our own expectations are, are crumbling down around us that He uses us the most. Now before we begin, I want to give credit to the general outline of this sermon to a brother in Christ named Anthony Kidd. If you've never heard of him, he's, he's worth looking into. He's an amazing preacher. And I heard him deliver a sermon on this passage several years ago, and I knew that if I ever had the chance to teach on this passage, that I had to steal this man's outline because the Lord spoke to my own heart in such a profound way through it. And so I, I pray that it does to yours as well. So before we go any further, let us pray that the Holy Spirit guides our time together this morning. Lord, we love you. God, and I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. God, there, there are so real examples, such real examples of Christians who, Lord, would do anything to be in our position right now. So, Lord, as I pray every week, God, I pray that you help us not take this morning for granted. Lord, I pray that you give us the ears to hear the things that you would have us learn this morning. And I pray that your spirit just emblazons them on our hearts. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. So last week, we saw that Jesus sent out his newly appointed apostles, and he commissioned them to go and preach his message of repentance and faith, giving them the power and authority to, to heal and to, to cast out demons, to do these amazing miracles. And so they went out all throughout the region of Galilee, and they did just that. They preached and they performed these miracles. And because of that, this buzz began to build up, and it began to stir around Jesus all over the area. And the entire region was now hearing about Jesus because of the spread of the apostles. And because of this buzz that was stirred up, about Jesus, even the elites of the region of Galilee begin to hear tell of this man who could work miracles. And they hear about his preaching, about repentance in the kingdom of God. Now, within the circle of elites, there were many theories kind of thrown out to who the identity of Jesus actually was. Because they didn't, they didn't really know who was doing all this. They just kind of heard tell about it. So, Take a look at Mark 6, starting actually back in verse 12, going to verse 15. Starting in verse 12. So they, meaning the newly appointed apostles, went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it. 
for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. So all of these theories of who Jesus was is swirling around. And one of those theories is that Jesus is John the Baptist. And at this point in his gospel, Mark is thinking that, well, you know, hey, I haven't actually mentioned John the Baptist in quite a while. And so maybe, maybe right now would be a good time to uh, let my readers know exactly what happened to him. Because he is, he's, he's featured pretty predominantly in chapter 1, but you, you don't really hear anything else about John the Baptist. So, so a lot of these readers who would be reading this in the city of Rome wouldn't really be familiar with John the Baptist. So they'd be thinking, okay, so there's this big, big, larger-than-life figure in chapter 1, but we hadn't heard anything about him since then. So Mark is like, okay, let's take some time and explain what happened to John the Baptist. But before we do that, before we learn ourselves the fate of John the Baptist, I want us first to remember who he was. Who he was. Because I believe that will fill in some gaps for us in this narrative, and it will help us really feel the weight of this passage here in Mark 6. And so to do that, to understand who John the Baptist truly was, I'm going to kind of step outside of the confines of our passage here in Mark as we paint this portrait of John the Baptist. Now, as Anthony Kidd points out, the first thing that you need to know about John the Baptist was that he was a giant of faith. He was a giant of faith. Each one of us in this room should strive to be a man or woman like John the Baptist. He was a giant of the faith. And this is not something that he, he grew into later in life either. Check out Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 13. Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 13. Now, to set the stage a little here, John's parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth. And both of them desperately wanted a child, but Elizabeth was unable to because she was barren. But after ceaseless praying, Zechariah, who was a priest, was given the duty to enter into the temple to burn incense at the altar. And when he entered into the temple, he saw an angel standing there. And at first he was terrified. And this is where verse 13 picks up. It says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will receive or rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so what this is telling us 
is that from the very moment of conception, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but he would, he would go on to turn hearts from sin back to God. And he would prepare the way for the Lord. And he did just that. This man was a giant of the faith. Now the next thing you need to know about John the Baptist is that he was a superior prophet. He was a superior prophet. Now I know what you may be thinking. How can someone be a superior prophet? I thought you were either a prophet or you weren't a prophet. How can you be a superior prophet? And the, easier, the easy answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know. But listen to the words of Jesus when our Lord himself is describing John in Matthew 11. This is what Jesus says about John the Baptist. Jesus says of John in verse 7 through 11, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, and listen, listen closely to this, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Wow. From the lips of Jesus, the Son of God, John the Baptist, he wasn't simply a prophet. He was more than a prophet. And Jesus says, out of anyone ever born of a woman, there is none greater than John. No one. Not Abraham, not, not Moses, not David, not Jeremiah, not Esther. No one. No one was greater than John the Baptist. And this is important for us to understand. Because when we think of John the Baptist... Often, all we remember is the image of this eccentric weirdo, right? This, this weird guy wearing strange clothing with, with this gross diet of honey and bugs. It's often our, our image of John. But friends, no, no. John was so much more than our, our mental image of him. He was a superior prophet and a man of God like none who came before him. That is the testimony of Jesus to the character of John. We should all want to be like John the Baptist. The third thing that you must know about John the Baptist is that he was a fearless preacher. He was a fearless preacher. Brothers, if only we had the courage to preach like John the Baptist. Christians, if, if only we had the courage to evangelize like John the Baptist. Take a look at Luke 3, 7 through 9. Luke 3, 7 through 9. I believe this is one of the slides. John said to them, 
God loves you just the way you are and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that what he preached? Is that it? No. No, that's not right. That's not what he said. What did he say? He says, therefore, or sorry, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You see, they often try to take for granted that they were all born Jewish, believing that that alone was enough to save them. But, but John is saying, saying, no, 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 you can't do that, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And as one Bible commentator says, what a way to build a church, right? <laughs> Calling all of those who came out to be baptized a brood of vipers. And notice here that he's not, he's not talking to Pharisees. We, we may understand that. We may be all right with him calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers, but no. He's calling people who came to be baptized a brood of vipers. And it's interesting that I have yet to read in any church planting manuals to call your congregation or people who are wanting to be part of your church a brood of vipers. I'm not going to do that right now. So. But you see, John was a fearless, fearless preacher. He was unafraid to confront sin head on. And brothers and sisters, we should aim to be just as fearless as John is here. Now, I'm not saying that we need to call everyone a brood of vipers. That's not what I'm saying. But we must be as fearless as John was when confronting the sin of our day. We must be willing to call it out in the lives of those we share the gospel with. We call Jesus a Savior because He saves, right? Is that right? That's why we call Him a Savior. But what does he save us from? What is it that he saves us from? It's our sin. He saves us from our sin. And not only that, but the righteous wrath of God that must be dealt out to those who sin. That is what Jesus saves us from. So if we are not warning others of the sin that is holding them captive, if we don't warn them of the wrath of God, they will never understand why they need a Savior in the first place. And this is what John understood. And that's what we must understand. But not only that, but he, didn't, he did not simply just call out the normal everyday person that came to be baptized. He also was fearless in calling out the most powerful political leaders of his day as well. He was not afraid of the face of man, period. He was not afraid of the face of man. Man held no sway over John the Baptist. None. None. He knew his reputation was in the hands of God, so why fear? He knew his life was in the hands of God, so why fear? And brothers and sisters, you should want to be like John the Baptist. Lastly, though he was a giant of the faith, 
a superior prophet and a man who stood fearlessly before all. Even though he was all of these things, he was not puffed up. He was not puffed up. He was not arrogant. He was not a man filled with pride and self-importance. John the Baptist was a man of great humility. Look at how he describes himself in John 1, 19 through 23. John 1, 19 through 23. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, No, I am not. Though Jesus said he was the one who came in the spirit of Elijah. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And listen to his answer. He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Friends, do you, do you hear the humility in this answer? Friends, John thinks nothing of himself other than that he is just a finger pointing. That is all he sees himself as, a finger pointing to Jesus. Nothing more. Nothing more than that. In John 3, John the Baptist is confronted by some of his followers because they have seen Jesus. And if you remember, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And John the Baptist's disciples, they see Jesus baptizing other people. And they essentially say to him, John, do you not see what's, what's going on over there? This, this man that, that you baptized is now baptizing other people. And what makes it worse is that all of the people who are following you, John, are now following him. They're leaving you to follow him. And look at John's response to his disciples in verses 27 through 30. John answered them by saying, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. What great humility. How many of us see ourselves like that? As, as one to be decreased so that Christ can increase. Well, that is who he was. That is who John the Baptist was. Friends, we should all want to be like John the Baptist. All of us. Now this brings us back to our passage in Mark 6. As we mentioned before, as the apostles were stirring up this buzz about Jesus, a man named Herod Antipas caught wind of all that was happening. Now Herod Antipas was one of the four sons of Herod the Great. 
And you might remember Herod the Great in the story of Jesus' birth, because it was Herod the Great that spoke with the three wise men in order to find out where Jesus was. And it was Herod the Great who ordered the slaughter of all the young boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem in attempts to snuff out the life of Jesus. That was Herod the Great. And Herod Antipas, his son, ruled under Rome. And he was given the area of Perea and Galilee to reside over. And when he heard of the rumors of this preacher, this, this, this miracle worker, we see in verse 16 that the conscience of Herod was pricked. His conscience was pricked. He heard all the various rumors that had been swirling about as to the identity of Jesus, but he would hear none of it. He would hear none of it. He knew He knew that this man who was preaching repentance and faith and doing these miracles could be none other than John the Baptist. It had to be him. It had to be him. And Herod was mortified at that thought. Why? Because Herod had him beheaded. And so therefore, this this new John must be John the Baptist risen from the grave. That is why Herod was terrified. Mark now takes this opportunity to go back and tell us whatever happened to John the Baptist. You see, Herod Antipas, he once traveled to Rome, where his brother Philip lived with his wife Herodias. Now, if you look at the name Herodias, you might be thinking that that this name is fairly close to that of Herod. And you'd be right, it is. You see, Herodias was Philip's niece, and was also Herod Antipas's niece, and in all likelihood, she was named by one of Philip's and Herod's other brothers after their father, Herod the Great. Are you following me there? Okay. Well, this love story isn't pulling at your heartstrings yet. Herod Antipas is believed that while visiting his brother Philip in Rome, he fell in love with Herodias who, if you're keeping tabs, is his, both his uh, sister-in-law and his niece. So just understanding the familial ties there. Long story short, they both divorce their respective partners and they marry each other. But John the Baptist, the, the fearless preacher, as we see in verse 19, he confronts Herod and he tells him that it is unlawful, according to God's word, for him to have his brother's wife. And it also appears in verse 19 that while I'm sure this this message kind of irked Herod, I'm sure he didn't love hearing that message from John the Baptist, it was truly Herodias who was enraged at John for calling out their sinful lifestyle. And friends, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. She wanted the life of John. She wanted him dead. And only the strange relationship that Herod had with John the Baptist protected him. You see, Herod was in this strange awe of John. And it seemed like his preaching was was nothing new to Herod. He's heard it before. And because he knew John to be a righteous and holy man, Herod even feared John. He feared him. And even though Herod had him arrested, which we learn in a different gospel... Herod still protected John's life. Herod would not allow Herodias to kill John. 
Verses 19 and 20 describe this interesting and paradoxical relationship Herod has with John. It reads, So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod was in awe of John and was protecting him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very disturbed, yet would hear him gladly. Now, John was in jail for probably about a year before the events of Mark 6 took place. And this, was, this was his reward, if you will, for preaching the gospel, for preaching repentance of sin and faith. His reward was a room in prison. And this is probably not how John would have written his story. This is probably not how he expected his life or his ministry to end up. Any plans for a long life of freely preaching the good news of Jesus came to a screeching halt. Now, I quickly want us to take a look at John's time in prison before we move forward. Now, with a man like John, this, this giant of faith, you would expect him to be singing hymns like the Apostle Paul was when, when he was in prison, right? It's kind of the, the image that you would kind of, kind of muster up in your mind as you think of John the Baptist sitting in prison. You would expect this giant of faith to not waver an inch, even when surrounded by iron bars. But no. What we find is that in his imprisonment, John the Baptist finds himself in a moment of despair. He finds himself in a crisis of faith. Look again at Luke 7. This time, verses 18 through 19. And remember, the context here is John in prison. It says, The disciples reported all these things to him, meaning the miracles of Jesus to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one? Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Friends, I, I pray that you do not miss the tone of this question. Remember, John has met Jesus. He is his, his cousin, after all. He baptized Jesus. John the Baptist even proclaimed that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the one who will take away the sins of the world. John knew Jesus. And yet John, this, this giant of the faith, this, this man who is a superior prophet, this man who is fearless, is having a crisis of faith in Jesus. And he found himself there in that crisis because things were not going how he thought they would. His expectations for what his life would look like has been shattered. And he begins to doubt. He wants to know, Jesus, are you the one? Or should I look for another? And brothers and sisters, even though we are on the other side of the cross... And even though we know what Christ has done for us, and even though we know the words of Paul and the words of Peter, 
That, that when suffering comes, we, we should rejoice. There are moments when our cry is the same as John the Baptist. Lord, I just lost my job. I'm homeless. I don't have a sin to my name. Are, are you the one? Or should I look for another? Lord, my, my child is sick. And it doesn't seem like she's getting any better. Lord, are you the one? Or should I look for another? Lord, I'm, I'm stuck in a loveless marriage and I don't know what to do. Are you the one? Or should I look for another? Lord, I've been praying to find a spouse, but I'm still alone. Lord, I'm, I'm under the crushing weight of depression and anxiety. Lord, I read my Bible and I pray every day, but I can't feel you. Lord, I have been diagnosed with cancer. Lord, my husband, wife, parent, or child just, just died, and I, I can't move forward. Are you the one, Jesus? Or should I look for another? The cry of John is one that we are all familiar with, in one way or another. But what are the words of Jesus for John in his crisis of faith? Luke 7, 22 through 23. It says, And he, Jesus, answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame Walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. His response to John's moment of, of a crisis in faith is not, not one of anger. It's not one of, one of even disappointment. His response is, is one of hope. He says, John, I, I know where you are. I know where you are. I know that you are suffering for my name's sake, and I'm not blind to you. But John, I, I, I know it's hard. But take your eyes off your circumstances and place them on the reality of the gospel. The blind can now see. The lame can walk. The unclean are becoming clean. And John, people are entering into the kingdom of God. And I'm using your shattered expectations of what you thought life would be to do it. And I am the one. I am the one. There's no need to look any further. And we see the tragic event that unfolds in the rest of our passage. We learn in verse 21 through 27 that Herod threw a party for his birthday. And he invites all of the political and social elites in the region. But we see right away that this, this party is a, is a nasty kind of party. It's a nasty kind of party. One in which Herodias' own daughter is the main attraction. Herod's stepdaughter is the main attraction. And we see that she does a dance that is sexually appealing, not to just the guests, but to her stepfather as well. And depending on what records that you look at, the age of uh, Herod's stepdaughter is anywhere between 13 to 18 max. And because she has so pleased him, he tells her that he will grant her any request that she makes, even up to half of the kingdom, which is 
not even his to give, by the way. This is the moment that Herodias has been waiting years for. When Herodias' daughter asks her mother what she should request, Herodias poured out all of her vengeful wrath into the answer. She tells her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist. Verse 25 through 29 says, And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter, by the way. And the king was exceedingly sorry, <clears throat> but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring in John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. <clears throat> and that was the end of John the Baptist. And friends, I ask you, if you were to write the story of John the Baptist, would you have written this in for him? Is this what you would have expected for such a pillar of faith? For his life to simply end at the request of a girl and a vengeful woman and a cowardly man who was more worried about saving faith than, what, than doing what was right. To simply fade off into history. <clears throat> to end with his body buried in a tomb and his head serving as a trophy. Is that how you would have written his story? <clears throat> but friends, you must see, you must see, in this bleak and dark picture is where the hope of the gospel shines forth. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus knows and that Jesus cares. <clears throat> Let me say that again. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus knows and that Jesus cares. Let me explain. Matthew 14, 12 gives us a little more detail of this tragic event by telling us the disciples of John who placed his body in the tomb then went to tell Jesus of what became of John. And when Jesus heard this in verse 13, we are told that, that Jesus withdrew to a desolate, desolate place by himself. Now, I believe the author of Matthew is giving us this detail as an indicator of the love that Jesus had for John. He needed time alone to grieve for his dearly loved friend. And right there is the beauty of the gospel. Do, do you see it? It's, it's easy to miss, but do, do you see it? The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus knows. He knows. He, he knew the plight of John. And he loved him dearly. And he also knew what was being accomplished through John, and what glory was awaiting him on the other side of the grave. Jesus knew. And so friends, when the bottom drops out from underneath you, and if it hasn't happened yet, there will come a day when it will. And when you find yourself in that, in that crisis of faith, you need to know that Jesus knows. He knows you need to know that He knows and that He cares. He deeply cares. 
He knows where you are. He knows what you are going through. He knows what you are experiencing. And friends, don't you dare believe for an instant that you are alone. Because in every heart-rending moment that you suffer through, Jesus is there with you. But just like he is telling John, as hard as it is, Jesus desires for you to take your eyes off your circumstances and place them on the hope of the gospel. My friends who lost their child in the womb went on to help countless of other couples who had suffered similar situations and to point them all to the hope that is found in Christ, even in the middle of all that tragedy. Life did not go the way they expected. But God furthered the gospel more than they ever thought possible because of their shattered expectations. And they know that one day they will be able to meet their child when this life passes away. And they'll be able to tell their child of all Christ has done through them. That is the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of the gospel in the midst of our shattered expectations. Christ taught my friends. And He is teaching you and He is teaching me that in those moments of shattered expectations, in those moments when we experience those crises of faith, that we need not look for another. We don't need to look for another. He is the one. And He is using our broken circumstances to advance the gospel in ways that we can't even imagine. And He knows right where you are. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your Son. God, you are the creator of heaven and of earth. Lord, in you we have our, our entire being. Lord, we couldn't breathe if it wasn't for your mercy and for your grace and the fact that, that the sovereign God of the universe loves us is overwhelming. And so God, I pray, Lord, that when we hit those moments of crisis, when we hit those moments of doubt, God, that you help us take our eyes off of our circumstances and place them on your Son. To place them on the hope that is set before us because you have saved us from our sin. Let us set our hope on the fact, Lord, that you are using every circumstance in the life of those who love you for our good. Even the tragedy. Let us believe that. Let us hope in that. Lord, we love you, God, and we thank you for your son. We thank you for him. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen.